Good. Thank you, Ruby. Let's have our Bibles open and let's um, ask for the Lord to give us a special touch from heaven this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in times of uncertainty that we have a certain and sure word from heaven. Pray that this morning your word would be our rule and guide, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. And these things we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. A few years ago, a reality TV show uh, featured a skydiver. Um, He was filming some other skydivers in free fall and um, he he jumped out of the aircraft and he began recording the various artistic formations and gymnastic moves of his teammates. And uh, he was even, even able to sort of skydive in very close to some of them and even interview them in the air as they were gliding down. And he kept the camera rolling as the formations broke up and one by one uh, each skydiver opened his or her parachute and then all of a sudden as the last parachute opened there was a sudden shift in the camera angle and there was a desperate cry of oh my god and the camera went dark and uh, later it was confirmed on the news that the cameraman had fallen to his death and he'd spoken his last words on live television. What was really striking was that when they found the body, they discovered that he wasn't wearing a parachute. He'd been so preoccupied with making the film, so concerned about recording the skill of the other skydivers, that tragically... He forgot to put his parachute on. And uh, the moment when he reached for the ripcord only to find that it wasn't there was the moment when he cried out, Oh my God! And of course we can only guess what was going through his mind at that terrible moment. It's a very sad story. But friends, there is a basic life lesson here. You see, this man perished because he was distracted. Uh, He wasn't distracted by doing evil things or sinful things. He wasn't trying to blow up a plane or fly a plane into a skyscraper. No, he was distracted by doing morally neutral, perfectly innocent things. But because he was distracted, he forgot the main thing and he perished. Now last week uh, we saw that verse 12 brings us to the, to the end of the main section in the Sermon on the Mount, which means that from verse 13 onwards, our passage this morning, we're into the conclusion. And uh, in these final verses, like any good preacher, Jesus is urging us to make a decision. It's the most important decision any of us will ever make. It is quite literally a matter of life or death. You might think that after three of the clearest uh, chapters of teaching in the Bible ever given to mankind, that Jesus shouldn't have to spell this out in such stark terms. But you see, Jesus knows that like the skydiver, 
you and I can be easily distracted. So easy, isn't it, to come along to a service like this and enjoy the experience. How could we not enjoy the the music, the singing, the fellowship, the teaching, and the break from our normal day-to-day routine? But wonderful as these things are, and they are wonderful, if I am to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus and be saved, something else is needed. And in our passage, Jesus gives us two clear instructions. The first is that we have a definite decision to make. And the second is that there is a serious warning to heed. Uh, There is actually a very close connection between these two instructions and it will become clear a little bit later. But first, Jesus says that if we are to be his disciples, we have to make a definite decision. Notice in verse 13, there it is. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there you are, Jesus imagines us standing before two gates, and you and I have to choose which one we're going to go through. We can't go through both, We have to choose one. Let's spend a moment thinking about the two gates. Uh, The first, we're told, is wide. So that means it's easy to pass through it. There's room for everybody. There are no restrictions. You don't have to leave anything behind. And you can come with whatever baggage you happen to have with you. And just as the gate is wide so is the road on the other side. There are no traffic lights, there are no speed limits, because there's so much room on the road, people can go wherever they please. No wonder, we're told, that many choose to enter through the wide gate. It stands for the way of the world. It stands for the way that we naturally want to go, with our own selfish desires firmly in the driving seat. After all, we don't want anybody telling us what to believe or how to live. We want freedom, which is why the broad road is so very, very attractive. It means that we can be Buddhists or Baptists, we can be Muslims or materialists, we can be agnostics or atheists we can choose our own standards. We can set the rules we want to live by. Uh, On the broad road, there are no moral policemen pulling us over, challenging our choices. It does sound very attractive, doesn't it? There's something, I think, in all of us that does like the sound of a road with no rules. So by nature, we'll choose the wide gate and the wide road every time. But Jesus says, hold on a moment. Have you ever stopped to think where that road is heading? Yes, it offers an easy and comfortable journey, but verse 13, it leads to destruction. 
It's almost exactly a year since a Boeing 737 uh, MAX 8 aircraft crashed in Ethiopia, killing all 157 people on board. At the time, the MAX 8 was supposed to be the safest aircraft ever made. Do you really think anybody would have boarded that plane if they knew how that journey would end? No, of course not. And if we're wise, we will not choose the wide gate. Yes, it promises a lot. It promises freedom. It promises a certain kind of life and a certain kind of exhilaration. But Jesus is warning us in language that even a child can understand that it ends in death, meaning eternal death, separation from Almighty God forever. The point is that if in this life we choose to be completely independent from God, in the end, God will give us precisely what we want. And friends, there is no more terrible fate than that. To be separated permanently from the source of all goodness, the source of all joy and all beauty and all peace. Surely only a fool would choose it. And yet, according to Jesus, it's the popular choice. What about the other gate? Well, at first glance, it is not particularly inviting. For a start, it's narrow. So there's only just enough room for us to squeeze through one at a time. That means, of course, we won't be able to bring anyone else or anything else with us. And if the gate is narrow, well, so is the road on the other side. It has very clear boundaries. We're not free to wander all over the place precisely as we please. If we do, we're quite likely to fall off the edge. No, this confined, restricted road stands for God's way. It's life lived under his authority, the life that Jesus has been talking all about in the Sermon on the Mount. And in order to enter that kingdom, we have to pass through a narrow gate. Now, friends, I think it's really important for us to say at this point that you can be on the broad road without even realising it. The gate is so wide that you can pass through it without even noticing it's there. But it is not like that with the kingdom of God. You simply cannot enter the kingdom of God by accident. The gate is small. The road is narrow. It demands a definite decision to come through it. And uh, apparently, according to Jesus, only a few ever make it. Now perhaps you're conscious of that this morning. Uh, In your mind, you're standing there at the entrance, you can see the narrow gate. And uh, you can also now see there's another way, which you had assumed until this morning was the only way, the broad road. And you've got to decide which way you're going for the remainder of your life. It's a challenging decision to make. 
Challenging first because to enter through that narrow gate, uh, what I'm doing is saying, God, I am completely helpless without you. And the only way that I can be right with you and enter your kingdom is by acknowledging that I'm a sinner, that I've disobeyed you, and that I deserve nothing but your wrath and judgment. And my only hope of being right with you is accepting the death of Jesus, your son, in my place, which of course is what we're going to be remembering when we take the bread and grape juice a little later. Now, of course, saying that and meaning it takes massive humility. It's a humility that doesn't come naturally to any of us. But you see, the problem is that I can't walk through the narrow gate by standing tall. It's quite literally impossible. Uh, In the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, there's a tiny chapel on the spot where the Lord Jesus is supposed to have been born. The door into that chapel is very low indeed, but there's no other way in. Even if some tremendously important person, like uh, Donald Trump or someone like that, wants to visit the place where the Lord Jesus was born, the only way that they can get in is by bowing down and ducking down very, very low. And in exactly the same way, I cannot enter the kingdom of God standing tall with my head held high. I have to bow down low. I have to humble myself. I wonder if you remember the very first words that Jesus spoke at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it means that we are to come to the Lord Jesus Christ recognising our total and complete dependence on him. We can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless we accept him as our saviour. It's one reason why the door is so narrow. It's a hard door to go through because it challenges our pride. But more than that, If I am to go successfully through that door, I not only have to acknowledge Jesus as my Saviour with all of the humility that involves, but I must also accept him as my Lord. I've got to say, yes, Lord, from now on, I am going to live for you and according to your standards. That is very hard indeed. If uh, you are familiar with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be aware that to go the Jesus way is extremely challenging. And I wonder if there's a particular sticking point for you this morning. It might be something to do with your relationships with other people. So, for example, Jesus says that he condemns anger. He He tells us, doesn't he, to love even our enemies. So is there perhaps someone this morning that I can't quite forgive? And uh, (coughs) Jesus goes on and forbids not just adultery, but he forbids lust. Is that the issue, perhaps, that's been holding me back? 
Or it may be that for years, actually truthfully, I've been living for this world. For things that might not necessarily be wrong in themselves, but which I've given first place in my life. And I might be frightened of Jesus' command to seek first God's kingdom. Because, of course, that has real implications, doesn't it, for my standard of living, how I do my job, and how I spend my money. Because to seek first his kingdom must, by definition, affect every single area of my life. Perhaps part of you this morning uh, is drawn strongly to the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. Many people have that feeling. But another part of you is drawing back because his demands are so radical. And uh, truth be told, what you'd really like is a little bit of both. Uh, What you'd like to do is saunter down the narrow way for a little while and then nip back and perhaps have a leisurely stroll down the broad road. And uh, when that gets a bit much, nip back again and return to the narrow road. Well, that sounds attractive. Jesus says you can't do it. You've got to choose one gate to go through, one road to travel on. So which is it going to be? Kingdom of God? God's way? Teaching of Jesus? Jesus as Lord? Jesus as Saviour? Or is it going to be my way? My selfish desires, the way of the world? Jesus is saying, you've got to make a definite decision. And uh, just to remove all doubt, quite the wrong response to the Sermon on the Mount is to say, well, I've got to pull my socks up and try a little harder. That is the wrong response to the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is looking for something way more radical than that. You've actually got to decide the whole orientation of your life. Will it be for yourself? Or, says Jesus, will it be for me? And he's calling us to go his way and to choose eternal life. Now, on the outside, I know it does seem like a narrow, constricting door and a very narrow and constricting road beyond it. And yet, paradoxically, Jesus says, it's the way to life. Appearances, therefore, are deceptive. Uh, If you're familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, you will have come across the famous children's story, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and you will know that on the outside, the wardrobe is just an ordinary wardrobe. Pretty uninteresting, really. Nothing very attractive about it. And yet in the story, it's a door to a completely different world. Now, friends, that's how it is with the narrow gate. Everything depends on whether you view it from the outside or from the inside. From the outside, it can look very unattractive indeed. And therefore, some people dismiss the Christian life as narrow, limiting, inhibiting, I don't want it. And yet, once we open the door, 
and we actually go in, the reality couldn't be more different. Because Jesus' way is not an oppressive way, it actually sets us free. It sets us free to to be the people that we all want to be deep down inside. And its commands, well, they're not imposed randomly upon us, therefore are good. Because, of course, we have a loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best for us far better than we do ourselves. And he knows that it's only in the service of Christ that we can find the quality of life that the whole world is looking for, but so few actually find. Life in friendship with our Maker, which we can enjoy in part now, but one day we'll enjoy in full. And so Jesus says, no, he, he pleads with you, enter through the narrow gate. You have to make a definite decision about it. Don't be foolish. Don't choose what looks so attractive in the short term, but which actually ends in death and destruction. Choose the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to life. Well, that's his first instruction. And then, uh, related to it, Jesus gives us a serious warning in verses 15 to 20. Uh, It's been famously said that knowledge is knowing the right thing to do, but wisdom is doing it. That actually is the theme of at least five books in the Old Testament. One of the challenges facing our generation is that, on the one hand, we have access to more knowledge than any other generation in history. So these days I can expand my knowledge on just about any subject I like in a matter of seconds, uh, provided I know how to use a computer and provided the battery hasn't run down. But friends, knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. And that is true, especially true, when it comes to finding satisfying answers to the most important questions in life. The questions I mentioned earlier. Questions such as, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? You see, these questions are so important that factual answers aren't enough. We need to be able to interpret the facts in order to make a proper response. Now, in the Bible, the person that you turned to for answers on these questions was the prophet. Uh, It is important, I think, to know that in the Bible, the prophet didn't simply predict the future. No, the prophet brought the word of God to the people of God. Yes, sometimes that word was about the future, but actually, more often than not, the prophet brought God's word about today, about the present. And yet here, in verse 15, Jesus gives us a serious warning. Watch out, he says, for false prophets. 
that these people claimed to speak the word of God, but actually they didn't. They spoke their own words, and these people have always been a very serious threat to the people of God in every generation. The problem is that it's not always easy to know who they are. Jesus tells us in verse 15 that they come to us in sheep's clothing and yet inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Uh, Recently there was a fascinating documentary on Netflix about wolves. Uh, They're still a tremendous threat to farmers in a number of parts of the world and the film showed the damage done by just one wolf to a flock of sheep. Lots of them were killed in a single night. Uh, Some were left alive, but with terrible gaping wounds. The rest were utterly traumatised. So much damage caused by just one wolf. So it's no wonder, is it, that shepherds go to tremendous lengths to look out for wolves and drive them away. Now suppose for a moment uh, some wolves appeared who were terribly clever and then learned to disguise themselves as sheep. And somehow they managed to join the flock without the sheep noticing. Well, there'd be no way of protecting them, would there? And the results would be devastating. And Jesus is saying that's what happens with false teachers. They come in amongst the sheep. To begin with, you can't actually tell them apart. There they are, sitting in church on Sunday morning, or perish the thought, even in the pulpit. But in fact they're wolves, and wolves destroy. So Jesus says, beware false prophets. Watch out for them. I think it's very striking just how much space the New Testament gives to warnings about false teachers. You see, I think in our um, intolerant days, we might expect that Jesus would have seen persecution as the greater threat. Uh, Jesus and his apostles knew that persecution would come, and yet it's striking, isn't it, that they didn't seem to be unduly concerned about it, no doubt because they knew that when persecution comes, the church grows. That's always been the way throughout history. But there's no doubt what Jesus and the apostles considered to be the greatest danger. It was the danger of false teaching within the fellowship of a local church. So, in Acts chapter 20, uh, the apostle Paul takes his leave of the Ephesian elders with these famous words. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Now, obviously, the Apostle had Matthew 7 in mind, didn't he? Now, it's no coincidence that, um, and this is the thing I really want you to notice, that this warning about false teachers comes immediately after what Jesus has just said in verses 13 and 14. This is the connection between the two commands that I mentioned at the beginning. 
We've just seen that Jesus points us to a narrow gate. What the false prophets are always trying to do in every age, and especially today, is telling us to widen it. Sometimes it's blatant. Uh, They say, oh, uh, Jesus isn't the only way to God. Uh, Of course not. There are all kinds of different paths up the same mountain. And to suggest otherwise is the height of intolerance and arrogance. At other times, the teaching is a little bit more subtle, and you'll hear something like this. Uh, Yes, everyone must enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. That's true. But you know, there are many anonymous Christians. Did you know that? There are Buddhists, Muslims, and even atheists who are going to end up in heaven because they're serving Christ without really knowing it. Uh, Yes, they've come in through the gate, which is Jesus. After all, there's no other way. But they didn't do it consciously. Now, you see, that kind of teaching about anonymous Christians, well, it leaves no incentive to preach the gospel to anybody, does it? What nonsense it is. But you see, in both cases, the gate has been widened. So Jesus points to a narrow gate. Uh, The false prophets try and widen it. Jesus points to a narrow road. The false prophets try and broaden it. Uh, So the hard sayings of the Lord Jesus, sayings that we've been looking at for these past weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, well, those sayings are quietly ignored. Uh, A great deal is said about what Jesus actually offers in the Gospel. Forgiveness, friendship, life, uh, wonderful things that are offered to all people who truly trust in Jesus. But little or nothing is said about what Jesus Christ demands. And Jesus Christ demands a life of sacrificial obedience. And uh, if his moral standards are mentioned at all by the false prophets, well, they're softened to make them rather more digestible. But can you see that once the gate and the road have been broadened in that way, what the false teacher can do is he can give assurance to absolutely everybody, can't he? Uh, He can say, of course they're right with God. Uh, Not that there's anything to fear anyway. And so, Jesus' talk of destruction in our passage this morning is quietly tipexed out of the sermons. There's no mention of judgment or hell. So, can you see these false teachers? They are very, very dangerous. Uh, They lull the people of God into a false sense of security. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Well, that's their message to everyone. And of course, instead of pointing to the narrow road that leads to life, what they're actually doing is pointing us on the road that leads to destruction. So the great question is, if they come into our fellowship disguised as sheep, how are we going to recognise them? And that's got to be the key question, hasn't it? It'd be so helpful, wouldn't it, if there was a, a website... Uh, falseprophets.com or something like that and we could go and look them up see if they're listed but of course there isn't and instead Jesus tells us in verse 16, look at it carefully by their fruit you will recognise them do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles 
No, they don't. Each tree produces its own fruit. And in the same way, a false prophet will produce the kind of fruit that you would expect. Uh, I had a friend who spent his gap year between school and university working on a kibbutz in Israel. And uh, he was asked to look after the fruit trees. And uh, on the first day, the manager said to him, um, he, he wanted him to start working on the grapefruit trees, and then when he'd finished with those, to move across and work on the lemon trees. Uh, the problem was it was winter, and uh, at that stage the fruit hadn't appeared. Uh, but of course he didn't want to appear ignorant on his first day, so he didn't like to ask, how on earth do you tell the difference between a grapefruit tree and a lemon tree? So he wandered around without the slightest idea where to start. Uh, within a couple of months, of course, it was obvious, because spring came and the fruit came. And then, of course, anybody, even an idiot could tell the difference between a grapefruit tree and a lemon tree. And Jesus says that's how it is, you see, with false prophets. You can tell whether they are good or bad, true or false, by their fruit. So, are they like the Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for the sheep? Good question to ask. Or, are they like wolves, using their own position to feed their appetite for power, for self-promotion, and for financial gain. Now, I should say at this point that uh, we shouldn't expect absolute perfection from those who teach us. That's an enormous relief to me. But we are to expect our teachers to be living under the authority of Christ. And if they are, however imperfectly, there should be some evidence of that in their lives. There ought to be some good fruit. So what about, for example, the effect that they have on other people? Does their teaching produce the good fruit of humble believers in the Lord Jesus who are seeking to live in submission to him? Or does it rather produce proud, divisive people who are rather more full of themselves and their little clique than they are of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say at this point, dear brothers and sisters, that we really must not be naive and accept all of the teaching that we read and that we hear with the same enthusiasm? I think we can be guilty of that sometimes, can't we? All churches, all books and all ministers are not equally helpful. Some of them can do a great deal of harm. And if they don't point us to Christ and to Christ's standards and the narrow gate, the chances are that they are pointing us to the broad road that leads to destruction. So whatever I'm reading or hearing, there are certain questions I need to ask, aren't there? Is this teaching, is this sermon pointing me to Christ? Does it encourage me to walk on the narrow road in obedience to him? Or does it rather condone something that's easy and simple but which is actually displeasing to Almighty God? And what about the teacher himself or herself? Are they trying to live on the narrow way? Is there real evidence of that 
in their lives? Or are they mainly concerned about themselves? Please will you notice that Jesus places the responsibility of recognition firmly on the shoulders of disciples, which for these purposes means you, the local church. Jesus expects his disciples to be careful about who and what they listen to. The stakes are far too high for us to be casual about this. So can I ask you, have you made a definite decision to enter through the narrow gate? Because if you haven't, it's high time you did. Don't put it off. If you do, you might well end up like the skydiver I mentioned at the beginning. You may end up being so distracted by secondary, perfectly innocent things that you never make a decision about the only thing that counts. And there may come a day when it is quite simply too late. And watch out for false teaching. There's a glut of it on the market, very easy to find. So apply the tests that Jesus gives us. Because Jesus says that you are responsible for what you hear and for what you believe. And your eternal destiny depends on it. Let's pray. Loving Father, your, your road often seems hard to us and we are frequently tempted to go a different way. Please help us to know what is good for us by your Spirit. Enable us to go through that narrow gate and walk on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. And along the way, please protect our minds against the influence of false teaching. Keep us listening to the Lord Jesus and keep us on that narrow road all the way to the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.